Good evening, everyone. Welcome to New York Historical Society. I'm Alex Castle. I'm manager of public programs here. And it's a delight to welcome all of you to our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Tonight's program, The American Republic, Fragile Beginnings, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And as always, we'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for all of his generous support, which enables us to present these wonderful lectures that we do for you. Um, so we, we thank Mr. Schwartz for that. and. Uh, we're thrilled. <laughs> we have a lot of exciting things. A lot of exciting things planned for the following year as well. I'd also like to recognize and thank our, our trustees and our Chairman's Council members who are with us tonight in the audience. And also a special welcome to a group of students from Hastings High School, 11th grade students who are joining us, about 35 of them. So always a thrill to have uh, young historians in the making uh, with us. <laughs> So, <laughs> so tonight's program will last an hour. It will include a question and answer session. The Q&A will be conducted with uh, written note cards, written questions on note cards, and you should have received a note card and pencil when you were entering the auditorium. Um, if not, uh, my colleagues will be circulating later on, and they'll, they'll give out cards if you don't have one, and they'll be collecting the cards from you as well. So uh, just keep an eye out for them in the aisles. And then after the onstage talk concludes, we will have a, a formal book signing with our speakers. They will uh, be out in our main Smith Gallery, and the books will be for sale in our museum store. So it is a great pleasure of mine to introduce these two wonderful speakers who have spoken many times at the New York Historical Society. We really uh, just love having them here. I'm uh, thrilled to welcome Carol Birkin back to New York Historical. She is Presidential Professor of History Emerita at Baruch College and the Graduate Center CUNY. An expert on colonial America and women's history, she has appeared on numerous television documentaries, including the PBS special Alexander Hamilton. Professor, Bir Professor Birkin is the author of several books, including her latest, A Sovereign People, The Crises of the 1790s and the Birth of American Nationalism. And she also serves on the Scholarly Advisory Committee of the New York Historical Society Center for Women's History, which just opened on our fourth floor. If you haven't seen it, it's really spectacular. So I, I uh, hope you come back and visit. Um, our moderator for the evening is historian and New York Times bestselling author Gordon S. Wood. Professor Wood is Alvin O. Way, University Professor Emeritus at Brown University. He is the author and editor of many books, including Empire of Liberty, A History of the Early Republic, 1789 to 1815, and has won the Pulitzer, the Bancroft Prize, and many others for his works. In 2009, he was awarded New York Historical's American History Book Prize, and in 2011, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Obama. His forthcoming book, for which we will have him here in the fall, we're very excited, uh, with, with Carol actually interviewing him, is Friends Divided, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. That will be coming out in October, so uh, keep an eye out for that in the brochure, which will be coming out in August. Uh, just keep an eye for that. And of course, now before we begin, just please silence any cell phones, uh, anything that makes noise. And it is a pleasure now to welcome our two guests to the stage. Well, Carol, this book is about uh, the 1790s, which uh, many historians believe is the most passionate decade in our history, making our present decade seem tame by comparison. <laughs> uh, it's hard to believe that. 
uh, your book argues uh, that there were four crises that took place during that decade that enhanced or helped to create American nationalism. Why don't you tell us just briefly what those four crises are so that we can get some sense of the argument of the book? There were many more crises. I just picked these four as significant. Uh, the first is popularly known as the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, which was an opposition to an excise tax on distilled alcohol uh, in the back country of Pennsylvania and in what became Kentucky. And this was really a challenge to the federal government's right to legislate, to pass taxes, and to enforce its legislation. Uh, the second was what we call the Genet Affair. And this is the French um, ambassador to America, the French minister to America, who was such a delight to write about because he was so crazy. Uh, historians of politics never really expect but always hope for a real character to come along. Genet was it. Uh, and he, it was a serious crisis because, in fact, what was happening was a French effort to recolonize the United States, or at the very least, make the United States a satellite of France in the midst of its great effort to liberate or conquer most of Europe and to do battle with England. Uh, the third crisis is known as the XYZ affair. And it is, again, the French. The French are the villains in this book, I guess. Uh, it is, again, the French. And this is a challenge to America's sovereignty in terms, above anything else, of their ability to engage in diplomatic negotiations. Uh, the French minister ran circles around the American envoys and demanded both a personal bribe for himself and demanded a uh, guaranteed loan to the French government to wage the war, which would have, of course, involved America in a war with Great Britain again. The final crisis is internal. That is, it's a crisis uh, between Jeffersonians and uh, Federalists. Uh, it's begun by the passage of some very unfortunate acts called the Alien and Sedition Acts. Uh, and it is responded to by Jefferson and Madison writing the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. And it evolves into an enormous fight over the origins of the Constitution, uh, Jefferson and Madison arguing that the states created the federal government, and therefore the states retain the right to say, we don't accept certain laws that you pass. You'll hear reminiscent, this is reminiscent of the Civil War argument of the South, uh, and also an argument about the how extensive the powers of the federal government were. Uh, the Necessary and Proper Clause, Jefferson maintained uh, throughout the 1790s the idea that the government could only do what was expressly granted to it in the Constitution. The Federalists argued, in fact, there was a lot of leeway in order to fulfill its purpose, which was to provide for the common defense, promote domestic tranquility, secure 
the economy. And this fight resolves until the Civil War, resolves the question of whether the Constitution is legitimate and whether it in fact created a legitimate government. So it is not until the end of the 1790s that you begin to get an acceptance universally uh, that the, the federal government is legitimate. So those four crises seem to me to be uh, fairly serious stuff. You, you argue that they enhance American nationalism. What was the state of American sense of, of, of itself as a nation in 1789, at the beginning of the right. Washington administration? Uh, I, I often have students who assume that as soon as the Constitution is ratified, that's it, everything's fine. Uh, in fact, I had one rather ambitious student who said, and from then on, America was the most important country in the world. <laughs> uh, it's hard to dissuade them of this idea. Uh, most Americans thought of themselves as Marylanders or Virginians or Connecticut men or New Yorkers. Their sense of the revolution was that it had been fought so that their local government could tax them, could govern them. They lived in a world with very limited transportation and communication, and so you could very easily live in Georgia and have no idea what was happening in North Carolina. So that they were 13 sovereign nations that had come together to fight uh, the American Revolution. And what the Federalists wanted to do was create an actual nation. They wanted to merge these uh, independent sovereignties into a, a genuine country. And the Constitution, they believed, was the best mechanism to do this. There's a kind of, throughout all their writings, I think, a, a desperate need to make this work, an absolute feeling that if this Constitution and this federal government doesn't take hold of the people's loyalty, of the people's respect, of international respect, that the United States and the experiment in representative government is going to vanish. How important do you think uh, Washington was pre as president to uh, strengthening the sense of oneness or nationalism? When he was hesitant to attend the Constitutional Convention, his friend said, if you're not there, it won't be legitimate. And when he was hesitant to take charge of the new government, people said, without you, it won't work. And I think they were absolutely right. Certainly in the earliest days of his first administration, the only reason people supported the actions of the federal government was their enormous love of Washington and their respect for him. Uh, when they sent a militia in to put down the Whiskey Rebellion, the popular view was if Washington said we needed to do that, we trust him. Without that, without him, I think we would have, they would have had a much more difficult time. You, uh, you, you say that, um that Washington's appointment of Thomas Jefferson as Secretary of State was a risky choice. Why, why do you say that? When Jefferson got hold of, he was the uh, 
American representative in Paris at the time of the Constitutional Convention. I always have to tell my students that he wasn't there, Adams wasn't there, Abigail Adams wasn't there. So, <laughs> I once had a student who said Clara Barton attended the. <laughs> <laughs> students are always surprising. Uh, uh, Jefferson had written a, a long 20-page um, attack on the Constitution. He urged people right and left, everyone he knew. You know, you could see him going through his address book. Every part, don't support this. Don't vote for this. This is a terrible idea. The Articles of Confederation are perfectly good. Uh, They're they a better representation of what the revolution was about. He particularly thought that a four-year term for a president was a guarantee of the rise of a tyrant you know, that I'm not fond of Jefferson. When he became president, eight years was just fine. Uh, he, he, he thought the Senate had too much power. There was uh, numerous uh, oppositions uh, to the Constitution, article by article. And he sent this to everyone in Virginia, and ironically, Patrick Henry, who was opposed to the Constitution, but also hated Jefferson, stands up in the, in the Virginia ratifying convention. He says, from far away, our dear friend Thomas Jefferson urges us not to support the Constitution. And so I think Jefferson was, uh, Washington was gambling, maybe trying to bring an anti-federalist perspective in to co-op it into the government, but he was taking a big risk, I but think. But his closest friend, of course, was James Madison, who was so-called father of the Constitution. So maybe Madison had some influence in modifying and, Jefferson's... And yes, but I, I think Jefferson had more influence on Madison because by... Washington's second term, Madison, after all, has returned to his idea of Virginia first, foremost, and forever. He became a states' rights advocate and really uh, it's a very uh, important and very savvy opponent of the federal. Much to the surprise of Alexander Hamilton. Yes, and, who, and regret. Who had been uh, his colleague in writing the... Mm -hmm. uh, the Federalist Papers in support of the Constitution. Uh, how do you uh, how do you rate Hamilton, or how would you? He's a big deal these days, as you know. <laughs> uh, how how do you um, assess his role in the uh, Washington the first administration of George Washington? Don't worry, I'm not going to wrap my answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am an admirer of Hamilton's. Uh, I wouldn't want to be married to him, but I'm an admirer. He was a nation builder. You can say many other things about him that are true, that he certainly was not going to go out and kiss a baby and shake hands with the ordinary fellow, but he really believed that America could be a prosperous, powerful, respected nation, and that was his obsession. He could have made a great deal more money had he just practiced law in New York. 
He was never so interested in money. He was always interested in being the architect of a nation. And I think most of what he did worked. That is, he certainly created the liberal capitalist uh, trajectory of our economy. He established American credit, and that also brought with it respect from other countries. He may have been, he, he was not politically attuned. Uh, during the Whiskey Rebellion, he said right away, let's go in with the, the military and put this rebellion down. Washington, thank goodness, was so much smarter. Washington says, well, I think if we did that, the anti-federalists claimed that we were going to be tyrannical and use the military to take over the country might look truer. So he said, let's try everything else first. Let's try the courts. Let's try persuasion. Let's try a commission to deal with them before we go in with the military. I don't think Hamilton really, he, he didn't have a good sense about, about the people, about the pulse uh, of, of sentiment in, in the country. But I think his, his policies were right on. The night before the duel, he wrote a letter in which he said, the American disease is democracy. So he had a Napoleonic kind of uh, streak, don't you think? And Napoleon wanted power for himself. I think Hamilton always saw what he was doing was leave me alone, give me, give me enough authority to do what I need to do to make the country great. I, I think there is really a difference uh, uh, between Napoleon's ambition or Robespierre's ambition and Hamilton's ambition. Uh, he, he's always thinking about how will this be good for the country? M more so than I think many of the men in politics in the 1790s. Why, why do you think Jefferson and Madison went into opposition by 1792-93? They were truly frightened of what, was, what they saw emerging. Were they just wrong, wrong-headed? Uh, I think they were Virginians. And they were, they, which meant before Hamilton's uh, fiscal policies came into being, Virginia was the most important of the states. It was the largest in population, it was the richest, and it was based on agriculture and slavery. And Hamilton's fiscal policies and economic policies clearly was going to move the country in the direction of manufacturing, commerce, finance, industry. And I think Madison and Jefferson found that absolutely, A, abysmal for the American people. That's the best interpretation. But also diminishing of Virginia. And I think they fought it tooth and nail. When Madison realized that Hamilton's programs were going to, to move the country in the direction of New England, New York, Philadelphia, urban life, everything that, that Jefferson certainly despised, uh, they, they became the opposition. How do you then explain the election of 1800? Uh, if the Federalists are doing such a wonderful job uh, in bringing the nation together, the election repudiated what they had done. I 
think what the election proves is Madison and Jefferson were much better political organizers. In Hamilton, you couldn't rely on him to mobilize a vote. Uh, Washington was gone, really, in effect. Adams, as my mother would say, oy vey. I mean, <laughs> you know, Adams' political instincts were, were below the zero line. And so I, I think that the Republicans really understood how to mobilize the voting population. I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm very wary of modern, modern uh, analogies, but Tea Party tactics worked, right? They worked. And I, I think that their appeal to Irish and German immigrants who were originally rural and farm people, I think their inroads that they made into areas of New England where industry was less important than agriculture, they were just brilliant at it. And so I think that their victory, which was not so overwhelming, I mean, Jefferson didn't have this amazing mandate, I think their victory reflected their political uh, genius more than whether people disapproved of Hamilton's program. Now, we uh, worry today about uh, Russian influence in our, uh, our politics uh, or our elections. Uh, you've already touched on this, that the French influence in the 1790s was far greater than anything we can imagine the Russians doing. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, when, when Genet comes over, he, here are just a few of the things that he was instructed to do. First, demand the payment of the debt to France, which was enormous, immediately in full, instead of being paid out over the years as Hamilton had set it up. Secondly, he insisted that the treaties of 1778 allowed the French, not the English, no one else, the French to bring uh, uh, their privateers could capture English vessels on the ocean, bring them into American ports, sell, sell the uh, whatever was on the ships, transform these ships into privateers and send them out to fight the English again. And who was going to make this judgment? French admiralty courts that would be set up in American port cities. N not American admiralty courts, but French admiralty courts. They were going to take over that particular chore. He was also going to recruit Americans to join the French army to attack Spanish Louisiana and conquer it. I mean, all of these things are, in essence, invasions of American sovereignty. Washington could barely, I thought his head was going to explode. I mean, he could barely uh, imagine that the French were planning to do things like this. And in fact, Genet insisted on it. And when Washington opposed him, Genet said, that's just your opinion. That's, that's just... Who, who are you? That's just your opinion. The American people support me. They're going to rally around me, uh, and the Congress is going to support me, and you should just be quiet <laughs> to Washington. Uh, so this is an attempt to transform America really into a satellite of, of France. Uh, then in the XYZ affair, it was the same... Uh, 
same goal, which was to draw America into the war against England, kicking and screaming, uh, and to tell the American uh, ministers who had come to negotiate a treaty, Talleyrand said, I won't even meet with you until you pay me a bribe and until you agree to give a major loan to the French government. Those, those are the conditions for us to even talk. And the American, bless their hearts, they were, I said in the book, they were like sheeps, sheep being sent to deal with wolves. They, they had no idea how to negotiate. They had no experience. And one of them was as close to being mentally, um, well, I won't say that, being a character, being El Elbridge Gary was. Uh, Later became a governor of Massachusetts yes, and Massachusetts vice president of the United in States. The United States. This is true. Uh, when, when John Adams said he was going to appoint Elbridge Gary, uh, Henry Knox said, well, you know, if you wanted to destroy America's chances of negotiating a treaty, you've picked the right person. He was the most hated person in Congress. People, in, uh, when he spoke, people would moan and groan. And the, my favorite comment about him is someone said, unless Gary himself proposed something, he was certain to be opposed to it. So uh, the French, in effect, were saying, this is how we will handle these negotiations. This is what we will do. And you will do it, or we won't have anything to do with you. We had, in, in following that up, uh, they, there was a scary moment, I think, in 1798, 99. I would say the scariest moment in our history uh, until, say, 1942. Um, that, that is the, the real fear of a French invasion. Yes. It, it didn't happen, and therefore historians tend to dismiss it. But right. I think many people thought that France uh, could invade the United States and, as you say, turn us into a puppet. After all, Napoleon was invading northern Italy and Switzerland. Right. Uh, he created the, the Dutch. It became the Bavarian Republic. Uh, the French Revolution was spreading itself throughout Europe, creating these puppet regimes with the help of what we might call quislings um, um, or, or uh, mm -hmm. people with, who are in supporting the, the movement as Quislings as did to support the Germans in, in World War II. Mm -hmm. So uh, this was a scary moment but that lay behind, I think, the, the, in fact, I think the only comparable period would have been 1942, where, where, where we rounded up uh, hundreds, several hundred thousand Japanese, many of them citizens of the United States, and put them into concentration camps, uh, something which we were very embarrassed by after the war. But at the time, it was signed up by Earl Warren, who was Attorney General mm -hmm. of California, by the Governor of California, and FDR signed off on mm -hmm. this. So we were scared and that I the think Japanese that were going to invade. And the same thing happened, I think, in 1798. And 99. I think the Quislings were the Jeffersonians. I mean, the, the Federalists believed that the Jeffersonians were the French party, and that they would sell out the United States in the same way that in European countries internally. And the French certainly believed this as well, because one of the things that they repeatedly said was, uh, if to the Federalist ministers, 
who were trying to negotiate this treaty, if you don't do what we say, we will get our French party in America to, to overturn you, to take over the country. And so the Alien Sedition Acts really have to be seen in, in the light of this tremendous fear that internal uh, enemies and external enemies were about to destroy the United States. Those acts, of course, have tainted the Federalists ever since, mm -hmm. and they've never recovered in some sense in historians' minds. But you, you, try to, you, you would make a case that there is some understanding to understand the Federalist right. Act, to understand those acts, and understand the context. Right. I, I'm not excusing them. It, it's also true that the big deal that was made about them, the Alien Acts were never enforced. Actually, Alien Enemies Act is first enforced in the 20th century. And the Sedition Act, the Federalists really were law-abiding guys. They, they, they would arrest a newspaper editor, and if you think, fake news is around today, you should see the kind of slanderous, libelous things that these Republican newspaper editors were saying. And they would arrest them, and then they would uh, indict them, and then they would offer them bail, and then if they wound up in jail, they would allow them to continue to write for the newspaper the entire time. I mean, it's not like they were burning the presses or, or uh, murdering, killing off the, the newspaper editors. They were, the Sedition Act was so ineffectual, it was just ridiculous. It was actually a liberal act in comparison to the common mm -hmm. law of seditious libel, which ran in the state courts. Uh, this was a statute at the federal level, and Jefferson actually opposed it, not on the grounds that we might think, that is, it was a got denial of free, the freedom of the press, but on the grounds of federalism, that the federal government had no right. Right, to make. exactly. And exactly. Uh, when he became president, uh, he was being attacked by federalist presses, so he wrote to a number of attorneys general, Republican attorneys general in various states, uh, urging them to go after the federalists <laughs> under the common law right. seditious libel. Right. Now, the rationale for that is that... Um, there were no police forces in those days, and, and the idea was that a, a political official uh, had to be respected if you brought mm -hmm. this official into disrespect, that is, his social character and his moral character were important mm -hmm. uh, in, in commanding respect, and if you brought that into uh, disrespect, then, then authority would crumble, exactly. uh, and there would be no way of, of enforcing authority. So there is a rationale behind those, uh, behind that seditious libel um, law of, of com the common law, which ran without statutes, ran in the federal, uh, in the state courts. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Federalists wanted it to run in the state courts as well, but they yeah. passed the statute. Yeah. Right. Um, now you say uh, that uh, you don't, you say that the neither the Alien and Sedition Acts nor the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions were decisive. Mm -hmm in determining the Republican victory in the election of 1800. What was decisive? And you suggested that maybe it was just politics, they were politically skillful? Yes. I think their ability to get out the vote, organize the vote, win. The, the Jeffersonians begin as a regional party. I mean, they are the party of agriculture of the South, of the protection of slavery. Uh, they 
also have allies in the West, these whiskey rebels in Kentucky. But they, the northern states belonged, in effect, to the Federalists. And you can watch in the second half of the uh, 1790s, you watch this encroachment. I mean, the, the Republicans are moving in, and they're moving in among the immigrant population. They're moving in among the rural population. And they're really, uh, they know how to make a certain kind of promise. They know how to glad hand and politic. And they have the advantage of English and Irish intellectuals who come to America, uh, escaping the British, in their mind, the British tyranny. And these men are great propagandists for the Republican Party. So I think they, the Federalists is simply outmaneuvered in that election. But the Federalist days were numbered. They disappear, essentially, yes, within they do. the next two or three decades. And uh, um, in fact, they were so anglophilic that many of their leaders said to them, you've got to remember, we're Americans. We're no longer English. Uh, so it, in a sense, it, it, they were contradicting your sense of nationalism well, well, with their anglophilic uh, allegiance because of the contrast with the French. They supported the English in the great titanic struggle that, that English were having with, with Napoleonic. But France. the same could be said. Jefferson supported the French even after they were guillotining everyone in sight. I mean, I don't think that, and, and his romanticizing of the, the French Revolution as it got worse and worse and worse and less democratic and less egalitarian is the equivalent, I think. I think the reason they disappear, to be honest, is the really uh, good leaders like Washington, even uh, Hamilton, these men disappear. I mean, they die off. I think that the, there were no men of, of uh, stature to lead the Federalist Party. Timothy Pickering, I mean, uh, there were not really the kinds of men that had led the Federalist Party Washington, before. Washington, uh, July of 1799, the year he died, just six months before he died, uh, is asked by uh, Governor Trumbull of Connecticut to come out of retirement and run once again for the stand. He would never say run. Stand once again for the presidency to stop the French president from taking over, the French president being Jefferson. Jefferson. And Washington writes this extraordinary letter. He said back, he says, no, I'm not coming out. He'd come out for the, for the he buckled on his sword and, and took command of the army in 1798, which is right. quite extraordinary, because he usually was so reluctant. Mm -hmm. to get engaged. But he writes this letter in which he says, look, it's all over. You, you can elect a, a uh, how did he put it, a, a broomstick. Put a broomstick up and call him a son of liberty or one of these epithets, he said, and it'll get elected because party politics have taken over. So it's partisanship that he sees, uh, as the, or democracy, we might say, uh, that, that has made it impossible for the likes of him to participate in politics, that character no longer matters, distinctions of, of character no longer matter. It's whatever the label the party wants. And that, that's a very despairing letter because you, you realize that uh, this was his view in the last months of his life. 
uh, kind of disillusionment with, with, with what he had wrought. Well, I think the real tragedy of the Federalists is that they succeeded in what they wanted to do, which is have the Constitution be recognized, have the federal government be placed on some kind of legitimate uh, permanent uh, uh, position, have America's reputation in the world be on its way. And I don't think they ever really understood that, in essence, their work was done. Uh, they continued to, to clutch long after they needed to. And that accounts for that kind of fear that the wrong kind of people are coming in, that, that men of, of, of intelligence and stature, because they still thought that they were in crisis. And uh, I think I, it may, I think that's their tragedy, that they couldn't let go of their belief that only they could save the Constitution. Only they were, they confused, I think, or conflated their party with the Constitution and the federal government. And I think what Jefferson's election does is prove that no, in fact, the Constitution and the federal government stands even without the Federalist guardianship. Yes, uh, you're, you're quite right about the Constitution, but Jefferson does roll back almost everything that the Federalists had done, except for the bank, which he can't roll back because it's a charter and he can't repudiate the charter. It's a 20-year charter. But as soon as the charter uh, expires, the Republicans in, in uh, 1810 let it lapse, let the bank go. So by 1810, uh, nothing is left of the Federalist program except the sense that the Constitution. Well, Gordon, I'm not sure of that. He, they were unable to roll back the fact that commerce and industry and I mean the trajectory of the American economy, uh, the political economy, if you will, they couldn't roll that back. I mean but, they could rant and rave about agriculture, but but in fact, spoken like a New Yorker, right? Rant and rave about agriculture. <laughs> let let me rephrase that. They could they could attempt. To, to make commerce and industry and finance the handmaiden to agriculture. But it was a losing battle. So I, I'm not sure. They might have rolled back certain policies or certain programs. But I think in, in the end, the Hamiltonian system won the day. The Jefferson's what what you call democracy, we've had this fight before, what you call democracy, uh, uh, I, I'm not so sure it was democracy yet, but the participation, the greater participation of the voter is Jefferson's legacy to America. But the trajectory of the economy, I think, is Hamilton's. And they they run together throughout the 19th and 20th and 21st century. I That's think. certainly true at the end of the century, but I think up to the Civil War, 19 out of 20 Americans were still engaged in farming. Now, they were commercially minded, but yeah. uh, the, compared to England, we didn't have an industrial revolution of, that, of the sort that existed in England. We remained farmers and an agricultural nation until the Civil War. Then things changed, and then Hamilton recovers his reputation, if you will. Uh, and by the end of the century, he is, there's a, 
uh, I think, a Hall of Fame that was created here in the 1890s, here in New York. And the first man elected to that Hall of Fame right. was Alexander Hamilton, because he represented, as you it said, It would have capitalism. happened faster if the reporter manufacturers had been accepted. I mean, Hamilton had that blueprint. Uh, when you look at the railroads and that growth of, of communication and transportation, Hamilton said, let's get British money. Let's get British investors here. Forget the war is over. The revolution is over. They've got money. Let's build the American economy with any money we can get. And that's really did come to pass. But there's no memorial in Washington, D.C. on the Tidal Basin for Alexander Hamilton, he alas. He never became uh, Th president. Thomas Jefferson is, uh, is the most celebrated American uh, next to Lincoln, I guess we'd say. More Certainly, than Washington? Well, or Washington, no, I'm sorry, right. Washington, uh, uh, of the Republicans, certainly Jefferson. Jefferson, yeah. And he does represent um, our equality. He, he, all men are created equal is such an important phrase that uh, Jefferson has. You, you know I'm going to say, unless they're female or black. Well, that's right? true. <laughs> That's I mean, you know, uh, all men are created equal as long as they're Christian, white, and, and you know, own land. Well, I, I think he didn't care about the Christian part, but he <laughs> certainly cared about uh, race, that, that's for sure. And gender. And, yeah. Well, nobody, <laughs> nobody cared too much about gender in those days. <laughs> for, no man did. No men did. Right, right. No men did. Uh, even Abigail uh, was not willing to... Uh, Buck the system too harsh. Yes, but Judith Sargent Murray was, oh, and she Susanna Rousen was, and oh, there that's... were other women who were. But I, but I, I certainly see your point. Right. Now, do we have, <laughs> do we have some questions from the from the uh, audience? Is it? Oh, good. Okay. Let's see if I can read it. Oh, here's a good question. Just, what can we learn about women in the American Revolution in the 1700s that, to utilize in the modern movement? Are there any specific women uh, to note? You mentioned one of them. Yes. There was no feminist movement in the, in the 18th century. But there were certainly two things happened in the 18th century. One was... Americans got wind of the Enlightenment that said, in fact, that all human beings are capable of rational thought. And until then, it was assumed that women were not capable of rational thought. Women's brains were too small and too weak. They could not tell right from wrong. And this is why, of course, their husbands, brothers, fathers had to keep them under control. Otherwise, heaven only knows there would be anarchy and Pandora's box would be opened. And this assumption was pretty widely held. The Enlightenment came along, and lo and behold, perhaps if you educated women, uh, if you gave them an opportunity, which is what Judith, Judith Sargent Murray and other women writers suggested, they too would be able to tell right from wrong. And the second thing that happened was the American Revolution, in which women took political action and announced political loyalties. Women called themselves the Daughters of Liberty. And 
after the war was over, one could no longer say uh, women don't know how to make a moral judgment. They opted for liberty. And those things really advanced. I think those are major advances for women. But it certainly doesn't happen overnight. And I have to remind my students that 70 years between uh, the Constitution and, and uh, Seneca Falls is historically just a really a blip. It seems like a long time to 18-year-olds, but it's really not very long. So the, the 18th century produces the context in which a women's movement can arise in the 19th century. One, one of the reasons for limiting women's right to vote was, was their lack of independence. Independence was the criterion of voting. That's why young men who lacked property mm -hmm. were also denied the right to vote. Mm -hmm. So that uh, it's the, the lack of independence, and of course the law had to change, and a whole host of other I, things I to give women the sense that they that that kind of fiscal or, or financial independence was not not relevant. The women reason women didn't have independence was religion, law, and custom. I mean, there were some serious reasons why it would be virtually impossible for a, for a woman to. Although, as Mary Beth has written, widows wound up with a little money, didn't want to remarry. They liked their independence <laughs> a lot. Uh, here's another question. How does today's political climate relate to that of early America? What can we learn from our founding fathers? I, well, those of you who have heard me before know what I'm about to say. I only write about dead people. <laughs> <laughs> if I... I, my political analysis about today is no different than that of anybody's, no better than anybody who reads a newspaper or the New Yorker or whatever. Uh, I don't like to make com comparisons like that. The 18th century was extraordinarily different from the 21st century. There might be, there might be problems that are analogous, but the ways to deal with them are simply different today. That's true, although I think understanding how partisan they were gives you a sense of context so that you realize that what we might be going through isn't all that bad when you look, because they, they were far more partisan. It was a far more frightening period. I think the 1790s, came as close to a civil war in our history as we've been until the actual civil war of 1861. So I, I think it's a very, once you see that they, they survived that decade, maybe we can survive our decade as well. I, you know, I thought about that because you mentioned that to me earlier. I think the difference is they were not tied to party loyalty in the way modern politicians are. That is, they were not professional politicians, and they didn't cast votes. If you look at the votes, even as partisan as they may have seemed, people crossed lines in Congress, what we would call crossing lines, voting their own conscience. The ideology that when you were elected in the 1790s, it was believed when you were elected, you were elected to vote your own best judgment. 
that seems to me to be really different from politics today, where you're elected to, to do the talking points you're given when you're elected to hold to the party line. And if you don't, there's, there's, there are penalties. If you don't, you're basically a pariah. I don't think that that was true. No, in they the hated 1790s. parties. All, both sides right. condemned parties, and yet they organized parties. Although the Federalists never saw themselves as the party, they were the government. Right. Jefferson did say he was organizing a party, but it was the like the Whigs of the 1760s to to combat the monocrats. And as soon as the monarchy, the monarchical threat was eliminated, then the Republicans would go out of business. They wouldn't be a party any longer. So there isn't. <laughs> an anti-party feeling that I think has run through our whole history. Uh, we, we, except now we seem to be committed to the idea that there has to be parties. But for, you know, the progressive era was, was fed by the notion that you should, should transcend parties. Mm -hmm. We've had movements of that sort throughout our history. Here's another question. After Washington, which president, in your opinion, has exercised <laughs> the most inspiration, the most inspiration and influence to unite the country. Martin Sheen in the West Wing. <laughs> uh, you know, any answer I give will reveal my politics, right? Uh, I would say FDR. Uh -huh. I mean, that, and Lincoln. Lincoln and, oh, I got a Republican and a Democrat. I'm batting a thousand. Uh, I, I think those two, certainly not Millard Fillmore or Buchanan or... If you look at a calendar that has the pictures, the cameo pictures of our presidents, many of them don't look like startlingly intelligent or, or alert people, I have to say. All right, here's a new qu another question. Many... Uh, newly liberated nations succumbed to sectarian conflict. Why did the United States persevere while others have failed? To what kind of conflict? Se sectarian. I think sectarian. you mean religious. Religious? I, I think that's what they mean by sectarian, because we did have a civil war. War, after, yes. One of the bloodiest <laughs> right. civil wars in the history of the world, world. So we didn't really avoid that. But it was not over um, religion. Right. Uh, I think, again, Kudos to the men who wrote the Constitution. They had seen what religious warfare did to Europe. They had observed the way in which it could destroy a country, destroy a country's economy. And they wanted, above anything else, I think, to avoid that. And the way to avoid that, they had actually seen it in their own colonial past. I mean, Maryland, after all, had a war between Catholics and, and Protestants, and certainly Massachusetts had strung up a few Quakers. Uh, they, they wanted so desperately to avoid anything like that and create a secular state. They wanted separation of church and state. And in accomplishing that, I think, they avoided this kind of uh, sectarian struggle, religious struggle. Of course, the First Amendment applied then only to the federal government. Uh, Massachusetts right. and Connecticut right. continued to maintain for several decades a, um, a, a religious establishment. That is, your tax money went right. to, a, to the Congregational Church. Uh, I, I would mention Jefferson's Bill for Religious Freedom, where mm -hmm. 
was one of the great accomplishments of 1785-86. He was away, but Madison uh, shepherded that bill through the uh, Virginia legislature, and that is an important document mm -hmm. in our history. It goes way beyond anything that the Europeans were thinking about. It's not toleration. It's real religious liberty. Toleration, of course, was nobody in the Western Europe was being hanged anymore for their religious views, but they were being tolerated, uh, which is not quite the same as true religious liberty, and that's what Jefferson offered in his, in his bill. All right, how did the, how did the, how did the, how did women play a role in the shaping of the Federalist Party uh, and ideology? They did. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always asked. Martha uh, didn't have any effect. Martha, no. <laughs> uh, slavery was an issue in the Constitutional Convention. Uh, scores of things we, not a word was ever said about women. Uh, women's rights, women's position. How about Mrs. Reynolds? Uh, she well, <laughs> affected, that, did, that, that didn't count. Affected uh, Hamilton. Actually, uh, that was after the convention, right? Right, that right, was, right. right. That no, was but, when the government. But the Federalists. Was, it did affect the Federalists. Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, and Sally party. Hemming. Yes. May I mention her for right, Jefferson? Right. Uh, I, I, there was. No one in the convention, you can read the records, you know, you can go to yale.edu, the Avalon Project, uh, and you can read Madison's notes, Hamilton's notes. No one ever raised the question of women's rights, women's property rights, uh, when, in fact, Abigail Adams raised it with her husband. People romanticize those letters. She says, in effect, uh, remember the ladies, and by that she means give married women the right to own their own property, the property they bring into the marriage. And he says, ha, ha, ha. And she writes back, and she says, I'm serious. And he writes back, shut up. I mean, that's really what that exchange of letters is. Uh, you know, he's cutesy about it. We know better than to give women the the power of the petticoat is already so great. But basically, he exercises his male authority, and he says, be quiet. I don't want to hear about this anymore. And so I don't think there's any way you can read into the creation of the Constitution any role that women played. Of all the founding fathers, who would you say was the most politically astute or gifted as a politician? You've already suggested maybe Jefferson, but would you? Uh, I, I would say Madison was in many ways an incredible strategist. When you watch how he uh, gets the Bill of Rights through, which nobody in Congress wanted to be bothered with. But I've come over time to really appreciate uh, Washington. I think Washington was had a very keen sense of what needed to be done in the presidency about how people, the voters, would respond to certain things. And I think he managed to transform his own charisma, that is, people's love of him, into an institutional affection for the executive branch. And I, I think that's an I extraordinary I think he had, achievement. Uh, uh, wisdom and a sense of, of the possibility. A real, he's, he was a realist mm -hmm. and knew what you could do and what you what couldn't do. What you couldn't do, yeah. 
Here's a question. Did Hamilton have any chance to become president? Oh, he never wanted to. He, he never wanted. Uh, he knew he was no good at elective odd, uh, uh, office. He was not going to go out and shake hands with people in the 18th century equivalent of, of uh, kissing babies. Hamilton was an intellectual elitist. I think Jefferson was an economic elitist, but I think Hamilton was a, a, an intellectual elitist. He had gone from rags to riches based on his, the sheer power of his mind, which was incredible. And he believed he had proved that he was smarter than other people. And so basically, his attitude was, be quiet. I'm smarter than you. Do what I tell you. It'll be good for you. This is not going to win an election. <laughs> I mean, this is simply not going to win an election. He always wanted to play the role of the advisor to the king, that is, the advisor to the president. He always had in mind that he was a policy wonk extraordinaire. That was what he wanted to do. He wanted to have a bailiwick in which he could enact his nationalism. So even if he could have been elected president, which really he couldn't, uh, I, I think that was not his interest. He didn't want to bother with, with dealing with, with politics. He wanted to run the economy. Well, I, I, I disagree. I think he would have loved to have been president. Uh, but I, I agree with you that he was inept at, at what you might call retail politics. Yeah. But he writes this very poignant letter in 1802, I think, where he says, this American world is not made for me. He was really a character out of uh, the past. He was, uh, he, he simply was not, uh, he didn't fit into a democratic world. And that, that he, I think he sensed, that the world was going to become too democratic. He could never compete in that world. Okay, where, where can we, uh, oh, this is, this is one we've had. When did Americans start to think of themselves as, as U.S. citizens as opposed to citizens of a state? That goes to the heart of your book. I, I was telling uh, Gordon beforehand, sometimes you don't know what your book is about till you're done. I mean, till you've written. I thought it was really just going to be a book about four crises and how the Federalists handled them. And when I was done writing up these crises, I said, actually, this is a book about the rise of American identity, about the rise of American nationalism, about how we got from being Virginians and Marylanders and Connecticut men to being Americans. And I think it comes about over these, these 10 years. And even when the Federalists did the wrong thing or failed at what they were trying to do, in each case, it moved the country closer to people beginning to believe that this was their government, the federal government, and they were Americans. And it's most strongly seen, I think, in the XYZ affair, where millions for defense, not one cent for tribute. And what that stood for, what that toast was about, was when the French said, we can divide Americans and put our French party into power. And people came back, Republicans and Federalists, and said, even if we disagree, you cannot divide us. We are all Americans. Uh, from Virginia came, came uh, uh, claims 
we are all Americans. And I think that that is really a very powerful moment in American history. Of course, we never uh, defined American citizenship until the Civil War, mm -hmm. until, one, until the uh, 14th Amendment. Uh, you were a citizen of a state, and that somehow made you a national citizen. But there is no definition of American citizenship. And it's also true that not until the end of the uh, War of 1812 did people say the United States. They still said these United States. And so there's still certainly an element of that. But I think you begin to see this, this recognition that, that people from Pennsylvania and people from Georgia are Americans. And that's, that kind of nationalism, today nationalism has overtones that are exclusive. That is, it's us and not you kind of people, not you. And, we, and certainly after World War II, the idea of nationalist pride has gotten a very bad connotation. But I think in the 18th century, it meant the rise of some uh, self-respect about the national government. That was Unlike important. many colonial rebellions, uh, the Algerians breaking away from the French or the, uh, the uh, uh, Indonesians breaking away from the Dutch in 1946, Americans were British, breaking mm -hmm. away from the British Empire. Right. So the big problem for them was to distinguish themselves yeah. from the British. British. And yeah. that really is a problem. And, and it's, the, uh, it's the War of 1812, I think, that sort of clinches it when mm -hmm. we beat them again, so to speak. Uh, and that, from that moment, you get a real sense of American uh, sensibility or American sense of national. And you begin to get things like an American dictionary and an American school of art and American literature. You begin to get people writing about the beauties of America instead of the glories of Europe. So it is a big turning point. But I think this moment when people say, uh, we support our national government in the, 19, in the 1790s is really a crucial moment. Okay. Thank you. So uh, before everyone leaves, I just want to remind you, uh, uh, as Dale Gregory, our Vice President for Public Programs, often asks, how many of you here are members? Oh, wow. So, so for the five people that aren't, um, you know, not only do we encourage you to join because you'll get, you'll get benefits to coming to these wonderful programs, but also, um, if you're not on our mailing list as well, you should, you should be because uh, when these two come back in the fall, um, you'll, you'll get the brochure mailed to you, and that way you'll be able to, to sign up uh, a little bit earlier. If you're a member, you get to sign up a little bit earlier for the programs. So we do hope to see you back again. Thank you all very much for coming, and of course, thank you very much to Carol Birkin, Gordon Wood, for a wonderful talk.